Welcome back to the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller, and for the next 30 or 40 minutes, I'm talking with Dr. John McKern, who currently serves as CEO at, at WooGen, which aims to develop off-the-shelf CAR T-cell therapies for treatment of T-cell leukemias and lymphomas, acute myeloid leukemia, and multiple myeloma. Dr. McKern, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's our pleasure to have you, and we're going to talk about uh, WooGen uh, a bit later on, but first... I was hoping we could spend some time sort of making sense of your career trajectory and how it's prepared you for life in emerging biotech. Um, and I want to set this up a little bit for our audience. If I look at if I look at your career on paper after coming out of earning your PhD in immunology uh, from the University of Chicago, it appears as though you linger for quite some time, 16 years in, in research, uh, which... Uh, you know, you, you do that before jumping into, you know, the biotech VC kind of entrepreneurial okay. role. And that's, uh, it, it's unlike things that I've seen before uh, when I spend time with VC entrepreneurial types. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a two part question at you. One, you know, what was the interest that, that, uh, that, that drove you towards science? And two, why the long uh, pause in, in the, in the world of research? I might've done my math wrong when people ask me this, it's probably more like 17 years, but I defer to you on that. Uh, I'm a biologist and I'm not a mathematician. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I will say this, those years went by in a heartbeat. Uh, and it was um, probably the experience of working at a company like GD Searle that was so addicting. It was a culture of can do. There was never a defeatist attitude there. It was a very backwards company when I joined in 1987. Mm. Um, but we were given a broad remit. <clears throat> we were given the remit to take what was there and keep the good parts, toss out the bad and, and really turn the company around. And how can you possibly uh, walk away from something like that? <clears throat> Sorry allergies this time of year. Um, we had, you know, we had pretty much carte blanche within, within reason to build, you know, an outstanding R&D pipeline. And it was a, a culture of champions. It was uh, not to be braggadocious. You got, you got to follow the project all the way to commercialization and beyond. And, you know, learning to defend products in the marketplace for somebody that's in research it's very unusual. And uh, I think one of my mentors, Phil Needleman, uh, put it correctly. It's a little bit, you know, ribald comment, typical Phil. He said, we were pharmaceutical virgins. We didn't know the difference. We just went out and got it done. Yeah. But yeah. It, was, uh, it was really that bigger experience than once Searle became Pharmacia, we became, I don't know at that time, I think the sixth biggest um, drug company in the world. You know, the sun never set on R&D. We were global. Uh, I was never in my home city of St. Louis. I paid a mortgage there. That was about it. Got to see my kids occasionally and my wife. But I was everywhere else all the time. And it was after that experience that I said, you know, uh, only being able to hold on to this entity for three years before Pfizer came and acquired, this is no longer fun. Yeah. And that was the precipitating moment. I never thought for a second, not even a nanosecond, to stay with a company as impressive as Pfizer. I was, I was ready to go out on my own. And, I, and 
you know, I would say this, uh, reflecting back on everything, uh, I probably would have made the transition to small company and biotech sooner uh, if I had really understood uh, just how much fun it is and how risky it is. And, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a great opportunity to get into that creative zone and take all the chances in the world. Yeah. You, um, so somewhere around your, uh, your, your, um, I guess move, uh, from, from Pfizer, uh, into your, your gig with, with Calypsis. And then, and then thereafter you really started to kind of branch out into you know, yeah. the VC world. You, you did some consulting, I, hash, yeah. out, hash, hash all that out for us a little bit. What, what did you, how did that kind of map out after you left Pfizer? So, Calypsis was a great opportunity. I had looked at uh, several startup companies and in a mid-tier um, company, they had good commercial product. They were looking for an R&D head. And I, I felt like the Calypsis opportunity was an extraordinarily good one because uh, it was building from scratch. They had a small team already assembled. Um, a couple of flaws in the design. It was also built on some uh, pre-money assertions that kind of came on the heels of the dot-com bubble. And so there was this constant tension that we were creating and navigating and trying to take full advantage of properly that maybe what we needed to do is recap the whole thing and kind of start fresh. Uh, so that was an interesting experience to do that. Um, overall, building the pipeline, you know, a fantastic toolkit and platform for Calypsis, outstanding colleagues, many that I still work with today. Um, and going out on the fundraising trail, you know, bringing in a giant like Ken Langone as an investor and a board member, and boy, is he active, <laughs> and just mm -hmm. a bundle of energy. Uh, and then subsequently going out on another fundraising campaign with, you know, the legendary Fred Frank of what was Lehman Brothers at the time. How could I how could I turn that down? I mean, that's, that's a free ticket with some legendary folks, you know, getting, getting introduced to Stan Druckenmiller of what was Duquesne capital at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's time. I mean, so let me, let me, let me press you on that a little bit. Okay. You know, I, I think about, you know, you, you started the conversation off by saying, well, I'm a biologist, you know, and then that's, that's where I, that's where I was born and I, I did research and that's what I did for a long time. And then somewhere along the line there, there came this transition where, you know, I don't want to, you know, I, I certainly don't want to stereotype, but uh, I know a lot of biologists who would be like, no, I'm not, I'm, yeah. I'm not going out on the fundraising road with a bunch of dudes from Lehman Brothers. That's not my yeah. thing, you know? So I'm, I'm, I want to dig a little bit deeper into what, uh, what, what kind of was the catalyst to the transition? Sure. Well, even going back to my Searle years, I was constantly tagged to go out uh, with the small teams that go out on a confidential basis to look at acquisitions and mergers. Mm -hmm. So I was always on that hunt. Uh, you know, in the early 90s, we were looking at Immunex, and we couldn't convince the CEO of Monsanto at that time, the parent company, that it was a good, a good buy. And oh, my Lord, I mean, if you look back on that now, it's like, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. But those were uh, sort of feeding frenzies, thirsts, and such that... Uh, that really uh, drove a lot of this curiosity to be out on the commercial side or the business side. And uh, that's where I got some of my first taste of it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, at, at what point did you add consulting and, uh, and, and the VC position with Rivervest into the mix? Well, there was a year of transition from Calypsis where, you know, I helped serve as uh, the occasional advisor uh, to, the, to the firm. So I would come in, was invited into the project reviews, which any of my, my companies or things that I've touched, they were always, you know, extensive peer review. They're, they're intense. And we do that for a reason to really get to the best uh, analysis of where we are. So we're not drinking our own Kool-Aid. And it was during that time that I started to get a lot of nibbles from other parties saying, Hey, will you come help me with this? Help me with that. And I had never done it. I had never set up my own LLC slash S Corp. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it turned out to be quite lucrative. I mean, it was quite interesting, quite lucrative, very dynamic, never boring. There was always something new coming. Uh, And that's when I got into some of the Bay area companies and, and so forth. So I was up and down the California coast uh, dealing with some Midwest opportunities. Um, but that was pretty much the shtick. Yeah. When you, uh, when you came into Calypsis, um, you started there as CSO, is that correct? And then eventually became CEO. Yeah. The CEO chair was open. They had, you know, pretty recently founded the company with a CBO and a head of research. And so they were looking for a head of R and D type. And uh, my experience that was, yeah very applicable for what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, you know, frankly, we weren't sure, should I step into the CEO chair? You know, and maybe I was more of a reluctant CEO at that stage of my career than would have been optimum. Uh, you know, you're learning all on the go. Uh, but that that's kind of the lay of the land there. Yeah. Uh, what did you feel least prepared to do when you assume the CEO role? What was the most intimidating? I'm going to, this is a soul, a soul bearing question I'm asking you, Dr. McCurry. What was the most intimidating thing? I think part of it is um, dealing with the constancy of naysayers um, that, mm. that can come your way, whether it's trying to chart out a, a path on um, pipeline building partnerships, fundraising, governance. Um, when somebody is truly drug, sorry, when somebody is truly dug into their position mm-hmm. and all rhyme and reason seems not to influence, I don't handle those disappointments extremely well. I start to really polarize. And uh, that's been a learning is how to bring people like that out into comfort zone and into a conversation zone more effectively. Uh, and sometimes you're just not going to change their mind. It's, <laughs> it's the way it is. Um, I'd say the other thing is, you know, some of us have a pretty good crystal ball type of capability. You can usually see things before others even know it's possible or that it's going to go this way. And if you're out pitching a partnership opportunity to a Merck or a Pfizer or a Glaxo, and you're oriented that way, as many of us are, uh, it gets frustrating that other people can't see for the possibility. And, you know, it really uh, encourages me as an individual to be that much better as a communicator and a possibility seeker. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a, a good learning for me as well. 
Yeah, it, uh, you, you certainly have to be. I, um, you know, I can only imagine when you're when you're going out there. I mean, it's a it, there's a lot of noise, right? There's a lot of competition for that attention. Uh, a lot of that competition, uh, you know, a lot of it's legit. Most yep. of it's legit, right? So, yep. um, what's uh, what have been some of your, um, I guess, findings in terms of what's been successful differentiating your voice? I think uh, just being more simple in in the conveyance of what the possibility is don't get don't get trapped in the weeds don't try to over explain uh, it's like uh, alan alda loves to work with scientists and refine their message so that they can describe to the lay person what it is they're doing what the societal importance and impact could be mm-hmm. and i think those are all very I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that piece of theatrical art and it, and it does apply to what we do here we tend to talk in acronyms and you know parlance that is a highly specialized language and you have to break out of that you just you you just cannot you know you can't subscribe to that well i'm a scientist i have to speak as such well maybe to your colleagues but if you're in the business world or you're trying to do other things you better uh, you better develop a different toolkit yeah yeah. Um, you've, I, I wanted to ask you about this. I, I, I've noticed that you maintain some connection to uh, academia uh, through the uh, Northern Illinois University McKern Fellows. So uh, is, that, is that still an active program? Sure is. Yeah, uh, talk we, a little we, bit about take, that. Yeah, we take in new, new scholars uh, every year and graduate a healthy crop every year, even in COVID. And uh, the vision was... Um, primarily to attract uh, kids with, with uh, uh, very high test scores, you know, but also Northern tends to attract a kid like me, which was the first, uh, the first child in the family to go off to college. Is that right? Yeah, I always looked, yeah, my two older brothers were in college ahead of me, but you know, we were the first. And, you know, I always felt like that was a very good thing and uh, always stayed uh, attached to the to the president of the university, John Peters, at at that time, <clears throat> who was downright legendary, and uh, he was very passionate about that uh, and and maintaining that sort of fingerprint and phenotype. And so we looked at that and we said, now what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that those kids have a very hard time with the transition from college into the job market. Mm-hmm. or into the world of maybe I need to go to graduate school, or maybe I need to do a gap year, or maybe I need to go join the Peace Corps. And that is what we wanted to do something different about. And I, I, I expressed this view. Uh, Joe Maddy and Mike Malone were the, were the two administrators uh, at NIU for which Cassandra, my wife, and I spent so much time describing what this could be and what our vision of it might be. And uh, it came together as a real synthesis of bringing external opportunity to DeKalb, to little old DeKalb, right in the middle of the cornfields, and to make this real for these students and to give them a workshop quality to it. They can be hands-on, they can ask questions, they can really tear something apart, put it back together again. And there's absolutely no fear factor uh, you've got a parachute on your back. You've got belts and suspenders. You're not going to fail. This, this is an inquiry. It's a constant process of discovery about what's out there. 
And frankly, this is a time in your life where you should try on as many coats as you want and see which one fits you the best. And don't be afraid to switch out. Yeah, that's cool. Do you, do you maintain uh, involvement with, uh, like, pretty active involvement with the university? As much as we can now. Yeah. You know, we've seen one of the challenges is it's, it's associated with the honors program. And the honors program at most universities has a pretty high turnover rate at the top. And so the leadership, that's been one of our challenges is fortifying that leadership cadre and going deeper into the organization so that we have this ongoing relationship so that if, you know, if you use the sports parlance, if one pitcher goes down, the team doesn't suffer. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. All right, so I want to shift gears back again to uh, to your, you know, uh, I guess the the breadth of, of your you background. You didn't ask me about my other passion at NIU. I didn't ask you about that. Do you know what that is? Give me a give me a minute. Um, Two little four legged creatures with blue eyes. No. So we also sponsor the the mission mascot program. So the the Siberian Huskies that are the live mascots for the university is a passion of ours. And we, we created that around the same time and mission. So there's mission one is his nickname is Mishy Moo because he's just a big sweetheart. He's a, he's what we call a very wet dog. He loves to give kisses. And Mishy two is the pup who's now in training. And so this week was his first day of school and he was ready to get his backpack and, his supplies all ready to go. Oh, that's great. So uh, th- these are the first two generations? They, they are. They, yeah. They're yeah. the first uh, true Siberian Husky mascots. There have been some other representations that I think uh, had we sent off the, the DNA samples, it might not have turned out so well. <laughs> <laughs> and now, are, do they take up residence there in the, in the McCurran home? I only wish. We're, we're, too, oh. we're too far away and they're on campus nearly constantly. Uh, if it's a big event, they're accompanied by ROTC cadets. Yep. And that's, that's a shout out uh, to my father who had a, a, you know, important stage in his life in World War II, a military uh, experience with the Marine Corps. And yeah. um, so it's worked out really well. And we wanted to bring, we didn't want those pups showing up at a frat party. That would not be good. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's cool. It's a, a lasting legacy. Yeah, or at your uh, your alma mater. Yeah, very neat. Uh, so yeah, getting back to um, to your to your broad experience in academia and in, in research, you know, in in uh, in business leadership, uh, the commercial aspects. I wanted to, before we start, you know, for, before we spend some time on on Wujun, I wanted to just get your, I guess, uh, if you bring all all that experience together, and you wanted to give some advice to other leaders of emerging biotechs on, on, a, on a few uh, specific disciplines. 
I, I just wanted to kind of run through a couple of things. So one, one would be funding. And again, I think uh, the context of that conversation is a lot of these biotechs are founded uh, or, or run by folks who come from a background like yours in, in science, biology, who may not have the uh, extroversion experience, if that's a word, extroversion, I th- it may, may not be the extroverts, you know, or have that experience yeah. to want to go out on the fundraising trail and, and want to do the, you know, pressing the flesh and, and pitching the decks. Um, so for that person, I'm sure you know a lot of them yourself, uh, what, what's some sound advice you'd give those folks? Well, I, I think always be crafting the external message with uh, a peer group that can really work with you on word economy, impact, clarity. Mm. Uh, don't drink your own Kool-Aid. You got to get way past that. You need to really understand the competitive landscape you're operating in and never assume that you're ahead. You have to assume that somebody else is e- either right there on your shoulder or right, right behind you. And you hope that you didn't miss somebody that was 10 steps ahead of you. That happens, right? right. So if you are in a hopeless situation like that, you're out competed, you got to know when to fold the tent and how to do it and be honest about it. Um, there's always another good idea awaiting. So you, you can't linger on this point. Um, I think also it's how you build the team. There needs to be a truly a can-do or championship culture there. I mean, I wouldn't over-dial the sports analogies, but you know, a perennial champion team coaches each other. They give each other in-game coaching. They're there for each other. And, you know, they're always there trying to contribute with their personal best. And I think that's what has to happen. We use these nuances so much in society that they become sort of cheap throwaways. But reputationally, if, if, if your standard is sterling and you take great care of that, and that means not stepping over the trash, that means taking care of your colleagues, um, being compassionate. I mean, well, let's take an example today of where this is a huge business advantage. Compassionate leaders today can lead through the time of COVID crisis with work from home and mm-hmm. with other such tools. And uh, frankly, uh, some of the work productivity is actually better than if we're jumping on airplanes all the time and dashing out to different continents to do things. Right. Uh, so that's been a, a real learning um, but th- those would be, you know, I think those are some of the parameters I would definitely point to. Yeah, I like it. Now, I'm going to ask you about a completely different persona, uh, but, but still a common persona in the emerging biotech world. And that's the, the leader uh, of uh, an entrepreneurial venture in biotech who, who's not a scientist. You know, maybe they, they come from a completely different industry. They've got some, some money and passion and, and vision and they, and they, and they want to take over a company that's going to do some, some good. And I've talked to plenty of those folks as well, but they don't come at it with a science and, and, uh, and manufacturing a biopharma manufacturing background. Um, what advice do you have them around the science and, and manufacturing aspects of, of pharmaceutical? Hire the best people and, you know, stay in your lane. It's just like the scientists need to, scientists leaders need to stay in their lane. They need to, if you're going to be the CEO, you can't, be meddling in the CMO's world. You can't be taking the chief medical officer off in a direction that he or she doesn't believe in. You've got to let them uh, flex their muscle and work their brains and really work their networks and understand what that patient population most needs. I think anybody that comes into this with kind of a, well, I read a Reader's Digest version of this the other day, or I read the Scientific American version of this, watch out, that's a hobbyist. And hobbyist in business is usually not a good outcome. Yeah. 
All right. Let's uh, let's shift gears and, and talk about your work at Wujin. First, uh, how did this come to pass? How long have you been there and, and how did you end up there? So Wujin came out of um, uh, a seed stage fund that Rivervest set up. It was the first and so far only seed stage fund at the firm in its 20-year history. Uh, went ahead with my phone is making some noise. Sorry. Set that aside. Um, so it came out of the Archer Seed Fund. Uh, one of our scientific advisors at at Rivervest, uh, Dr. John DePersio, who I've known for a very long time, a very, very good colleague, uh, was doing a, a whiteboard uh, chat one day with us about what would be some cool stuff in, in cancer therapy that might be uh, coming along in the near term. And he sketched out a, uh, an approach to generate what are called universal off-the-shelf CAR-Ts, mm-hmm. so chimeric antigen receptor T-cells and showed kind of the blueprint to do this and got all done with it. And everybody in the room was like, ah, John, that was awesome, awesome. And as John and I like to go, you know, back and forth, I walked up to him privately and I said to him, great idea there, Johnny boy, but the bad news is you don't have a scrap of data. (laughs) He laughed and we both did. And he said, he looked at me and he said, yeah, but that'll change in about four or five months. I said, okay, give me a call when you've got it. And that was, that was literally what happened about four or five months later. He said, you want to come over or do you just want to talk on the phone? I said, no, I'll come over. So I go over to his office and I met Matt Cooper and I saw the data and I said, we need to do something about this. You ready to set up a company? Mm. And he said, yeah, I am. I said, okay, let me, let me start laying out the blueprint. And we, we, we did things. So it took six to eight months to get that first license negotiated. And um, Matt's publication came out about three or four months before we, we signed the license. So there was a lot of uh, back and forth and a lot of excitement there and a little bit of tension like, well, are we going to get this or not? Because others are going to see, you know, what's possible here. Yeah. And, you know, sure enough. You know, Carl June, Jim Allison, the Nobel laureates in the space certainly picked up on it. They they knew about Matt and John's work. And so, you you know, we had to start doing things uh, four, five, six months before we had the license that would assume that we were going to get it, but to start laying out the business path. So what do you mean by that? Well, who's going to manufacture this drug? This is a complicated drug to make. Mm-hmm. And so right away, we, we started partnering with Milteni uh, because they also had the lentiviral vector systems. And we knew it could be a one-stop shop for us. You know, not everybody has uh, that same experience, but we've had, you know, phenomenal work experience with Milteni. And I think part of it is because we put our own sweat equity into it. We, we definitely partner. Ken Krobach was our head of CMC manufacturing, very experienced cell therapy guy. Um, he's there at their facility. He sends, you know, some of his staff out to be there and and to help make and manufacture so that we're transferring what was a small scale process in our labs to a large scale process. Yeah. You, uh, so I'm, I'm curious about your, um, I guess your, your headspace when you had that initial meeting, learned about the, the technology, you know, scratched your scratch your chin a little bit at the at the data at the time 
Uh, and I'm curious about it because if I look back on your career, your um, it appears as though the majority of your experience has been in small molecule anti-inflammatory. I mean, I, I think some of the big names to to your credit, at least your partial credit, include like uh, Daypro and, and and Celebrex, which are obviously anti-inflammatories. Um, was was this foray into biologics or, or large molecules at all? Uh, daunting for you? Did it give you pause or did it give, maybe it didn't give you pause. Did it give anyone pause? Not for me. Um, You know, being trained as an immunologist and especially more on B cell development, B cell signaling, Mm -hmm. which really blossomed into a field. (laughs) Um, Digging into that deeper and understanding the very earliest stages of commitment to the B lineage and then tracing back to hematopoietic stem cells and all that work in collaboration with Ihor Lamishka at Princeton at the time. And then uh, along came a fantastic collaboration with Stan Korsmeyer. So now I'm back in St. Louis, Stan's at Washington University. We start this collaboration before I know it, Stan's publishing the heck out of this BCL2 BAX pathway, which you you know, now has been drugged by AbbVie very successfully. Venetoclax is that drug. Uh, some of my old chemists from Searle did that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so there was always this interdigitation of big molecule, macromolecule, protein signaling, while learning the, the tools and the tongs and hammers of small molecule drug discovery and development. And you know, Searle, again, was an ideal laboratory setting for me to learn those tricks. You know, what do you need to do in a toxicology study? When's the best time to do a preliminary study? How do you set up testing funnels? Yeah. But what, what Phil always, Phil Needham always observed, and I think it was right. I mean, I, he told me this many times. He goes, the unique thing about the way you collaborate inside these teams is you're always the first one to set up animal models and to rigorously test what's happening in vivo. And I, I thought about that for a minute and I, he was right. I, I just never gave it a second thought. It's, of course, we're going to do that. And we, we would always say in vivo veritas, right? Yeah. yeah. But um, when I first took the role um, that Joe Davey, Phil Needleman, and Ernie Jaworski really required of me uh, to turn things around at Searle, uh, I said to them, I said, gentlemen, you know, I'm trained as an immunologist. I know in inflammatory diseases research reasonably well. Um, where do you want us to go? And Joe said to me, well, what do you mean by that question? <laughs> Follow your nose. And I said, well, I don't think you're gonna like transplant drugs, transplant rejection blocking drugs and stuff like that. I said, a lot of the autoimmunity stuff is still too early days, um, too risky for this company. Mm-hmm. But I think the inflammatory disease, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, maybe even try to get after uh, generalized pain states and perhaps osteoarthritis, there's a lot of hay to be made there and we can move fast. And he said, okay, so be it. So yeah. that's what begat that pipeline of small molecules. And we went out and we in licensed because we knew we had a gap. We in licensed some clinical stage assets, filled in those dossiers, those regulatory documents and filings, executed on those trials. Steve Geis was among you know the great collaborators on the clinical side with us. And a lot of other colleagues contributing, great work. Uh, and that was all before Celebrex came along. And once Celebrex hit, everything changed. It was massive change. 
we missed on the early days where we could have applied the, uh, the immune system more effectively. For example, the whole initial push into disease-modifying anti-rheumatoid drugs, DMARDs. Mm-hmm. I remember specifically sitting in a room with colleagues and saying, should we be looking at anti-IL-1 antibodies? Should we be looking at anti-IL-1 receptor antibodies? How about TNF? And we just said, eh, it's too obvious. It probably has too much downside to go with it. Turned out to be perfectly good. Right. We, missed, we missed on all of that. That yeah. was the realm of Immunex and other innovators. Right. Yeah. I probably wouldn't uh, cry over that spilt milk with a, with a win like Celebrex in the market, though. No, we didn't. And we weren't, that, we weren't prone that way. We weren't wired that way. But, yeah. you know, we were then uh, one of the earliest players into the dendritic cell vaccine space during that time. We were there so early. I mean, it was bleeding edge. We couldn't, we couldn't make it through. And um, it was later then that these uh, R&D and commercial successes began to blossom with monoclonal antibodies and such. Right. Antibodies are, monoclonal antibodies are very well-behaved macromolecules. They generally bind to what you want them to, and they don't touch other stuff. If, if, if you're good at selecting them, that's, that's fairly straightforward. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the CAR T spells, uh, excuse me, cell space is, um, that, that's becoming a bit competitive though of late. Uh, what, what, uh, and I want to give you an opportunity to kind of segue from your, your reflections on the competition in that space to your platform. Uh, as we kind of run short on time here, I could listen to you tell stories all, all, all day. <laughs> what do you, uh, what do you make of the competitive, uh, landscape? Um, I guess the, the, the space in general and the growth uh, and how is WuGen going about sort of differentiating its platform in the space? So we felt uh, important to, to not go under the same lamppost that most of the other companies were under. So we weren't going to do, uh, B, you know, classic B-cell leukemia lymphoma. So CD19, CD20, la, la, la. Mm-hmm. Um, we went after the unmet need in T-cell malignancy. It's a very small patient population in the U.S. It's much larger in Asia. So, of course, we've got a different business model for that as well. But uh, that, was, that was point one. There are uh, several other licenses that are late stage negotiation status for Wujin right now that I don't want to spill the beans on, but we're going to build out a pipeline that's very different than what we started with. Where we started is with a universal off-the-shelf treatment for T-cell malignancies. That's a very difficult category because of T-cell to T-cell killing. So the effector population that you're introducing as a drug is going to kill off itself and, of course, the T cells in the host, in the patient. So how do you remedy that? How do you change that target so that it won't do that? It just effectively treats the disease. And that was the clever trick that Matt and John developed. So we've learned an extraordinary amount from bringing that now to where it's just about ready to file for investigational new drug application in the U.S. and start trials here. Um, and we're, we're going in parallel now to China, but uh, different process. Yeah. Um, but th- what that gave us was the early entry to the allog- what's called the allogeneic cell therapy space. So you take normal healthy donors, you get a simple blood donation, uh, and then you start processing that to turn it into a CAR-T. And everything we're doing in the company now, which some new platforms that will be rolling out through the rest of this year on, on uh, announcements, uh, works off this universality theme. So we have to be able to take 
normal healthy donor tissue, you know, blood donations, and convert that into a, a cell therapy that will make a difference in diseases that a lot of other companies are, are only beginning to scratch away at. So T-cell malignancies of all sorts, leukemias, lymphomas, mm-hmm. um, acute myelogenous leukemia, AML, perhaps applicable in multiple myeloma, we think so, but still early days. Uh, so that's not terribly crowded space. There are competitors everywhere you go, yeah. but it's not like the autologous or patient-derived CAR-T space, which is really densely populated. Gotcha. So one of our strategies was right away lay down foundational intellectual property that can serve as a, a toll gate for those that follow and uh, try to grab as much, you know, as much space as possible. Yeah. Very cool. What are, uh, what are the company's next big steps, next big milestones to achieve? So we're going to be jumpstarting, um, sort of jumping the shark, I guess would be a better way to say it with regard to clinical stage assets. We're, we're very far along at bringing in a program that's mid clinical stage. And in fact, in some regions of the world could move to registration fairly quickly. Um, you know, I think the way I like to paint the picture, a cell therapy company has a, uh, a shelf life or an expiry on its package label of maybe four or five years. If you haven't really achieved what you set out to do in that time frame, mm. probably ready for the, for the dumpster. Um, so the hands on that Wujin clock on the wall move pretty quickly, and that's a, the tempo and the pace we need to be going. Yeah. Um, there are um, opportunities to really fuel this pipeline in an extraordinary way. Some of the, some of the VCs that have looked at it uh, under confidentiality remark, ooh, there's a lot under this hood. How did that happen? And, and the answer is, is simple and clear. Uh, a couple of mainstream programs that we're bringing in, one already announced and one soon to be, um, benefited from about 45 or $50 million of indirect monetary support in the form of NIH grants, foundational monies, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so we're the direct beneficiary of those eight, eight plus years of, of foundational work by these innovators. And we're bringing these folks in as, as co-founders and making it worth their time and trouble. And it's been fun getting a band like that together and making music. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, that's a, an exciting time for you. And I congratulate you on your early successes. Thank you. Wish you and Wu Jen uh, the, the best moving forward. Thank you very much. We're about out of time, but uh, thank you for joining us. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, my pleasure. I enjoyed meeting with you and, and would love to do it again. We will do it again. You mentioned that you've got a few things in the hopper that you don't want to let out of the bag just yet. When you're ready to let those out of the bag, we'll, uh, we'll jump. Okay. It's a deal. <laughs> so that's Dr. John McKern. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online created in partnership with Cytiva, who's as dedicated to the new and emerging biotech space as we are. And nowhere is that commitment more demonstrated than at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com, where I'd be thrilled if you'd sign up with uh, our newsletter. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.